Well, beloved, it's um, our opportunity now to look into the Word of God and uh, yet again, um, but to hear from Acts chapter um, 18, verse 18, uh, through chapter 19, verse 10. And so that will be our passage for uh, this morning. And before we uh, look into the Word of God in a little bit more depth, um, I'd ask for you to join me in a word of prayer. Father, we are, again, grateful to be able to be invited uh, before your throne of grace and to petition you and to uh, seek your favor. And so this morning, Father, we do that as we um, seek the power of your spirit in, uh, through your word. Uh, Father, I ask that you would uh, grant to me a, a clarity of thoughts, um, just a, um, a faithfulness to the clarity of your word. Uh, that you would enable me to speak the truth in love and, and to do so unashamedly and with boldness, Father. Um, I pray, uh, Father, for those who are here this morning. Uh, we ask, Father, that if there be any here this morning who have not yet to come, uh, come to know you, Lord Jesus, as Savior, uh, that this would be a day and a moment of salvation for them, that they would see their sin, that they would see their need for a Savior, and ultimately that you would draw them to yourself and make yourself known to them, Father. For us, we rejoice in that, and we are grateful for the salvation you have given to us, and we ask for your blessing now on your word, in the name of Christ, amen. Acts 18, verse 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sancria he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills, and he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, and there went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And it happened that while, Paul, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not heard, even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. And he entered the synagogue, and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, 
reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. That is the reading of God's word. So we're turning back to Acts uh, this morning after a little bit of a, of a break uh, through the Easter uh, services. And, and so you can see here where uh, Luke says after this in verse 18. And so what he's referring to is the one and a half years of ministry in Corinth. Do you remember it was attack-free as the Lord had promised? Um, and it, Luke moves into somewhat of a lengthy transitional section here, uh, what we just read in Acts 18, 18 to 28. And really what he's doing is he's setting the stage for what is Paul's final missionary efforts in the city of Ephesus. Unlike those first two missionary journeys of Paul that we've already looked at, uh, where Luke highlighted, you remember, many different cities, um, he specifically, in this section, is drawing our attention to this city of Ephesus. And he's going to keep us in Ephesus and focus on it really all the way through chapter 20, Paul ends up spending two years here in Ephesus, which is the longest time he spent at any one city. And so you can see how Luke is drawing this out when he tells us Paul visited Ephesus for a short time, then he talks about Apollos being in Ephesus, and then finally he says Paul came to Ephesus. Now, there's a couple of reasons why I think Luke takes the time to highlight and draw our attention to Paul's ministry in Ephesus. I'm going to give you two reasons. One, I think it's because the opposition that the gospel faces from Hellenistic religions, which we've been looking at, it reaches it reaches its climax in Ephesus. Let me tell you a bit about Ephesus. Ephesus is located on that main route from Rome to the east. Um, it's the capital of the Roman province of Asia. It's considered a Greek free city with its own senate and its own civic assembly. And it's the greatest trading center and it's really the most populated city in all of the Asian cities that are west of Tarsus. But more to the point, and I found this so applicable to us today, more to the point is, as one commentator, Dennis Johnson, wrote, Ephesus provided a suitable setting for the series of showdowns between Jesus' servant and the proponents of other religions. And the reason is, is because in Ephesus there was what was known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, which is the temple of Artemis. Just to give you a sense of this temple, this temple is four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. It had 127 columns, each 60 feet high. They're adorned with paintings and sculptors of some of the most famous Greek sculptors. Um, so central was this temple to the identity of Ephesus that the city was designated Temple Warden of Artemis. So the temple was served as a bank for kings and merchants. It served as a shelter for fleeing criminals. Uh, there's also a papyri containing magical methods and spells that were commonly called Ephesian letters. So this is the center known for the magical and the occult arts. And all of this comes out in Luke's account here in Acts, when, as we'll see next week, he records the response of the people to the gospel. For those who believed and repented, what did they do? They took all of their books and all of their magical arts and everything that they once identified with, and they burned them. 
Then those who did not believe in the gospel, it eventually led to a riot in the city because the city and the people lost so much business because of their economy surrounding and revolving around the temple that when people were converted, they rose up and rioted against the gospel and they start to shout, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So this is a city whose identity is deeply tied to their temple religion and their culture and their economy. This is a city who sees itself as the temple wardens of Artemis. And so we are reaching a climax here where the gospel is confronting the popular culture, the personal religious practices of the people, and this institutionalized religion of the people at a place that is at the heart of Asia. It's like I asked my kids if they, ever, if they knew what the Battle Royale was, and they said no, and I didn't think they would. The Battle Royale is like in the WWF wrestling. It's that final battle. And that's how I thought about this. I thought, this is the Battle Royale. This is like that point in the spreading of the gospel where the kingdom of God is now infiltrated the heart of pagan religion. And the battle is going to be fierce. And we're going to see that battle next week. But now it's setting the stage. And I, and I realized this is, what, this is what the gospel does. The gospel... At the end of the day, it confronts and it challenges the worldview and the identity of the sinner. Every sinner, every person that is created in the image of God does either one of two things. Either they understand themselves as being created by the God who did create them, and they find their identity in their creator, in Christ, or they're going to seek to find their identity in something else of the world. In Ephesus, it was an identity in this temple. I think in our day and age, it's an identity kind of individually in ourselves. It goes back to the Garden of Eden when, Jesus, when God created man and woman, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden, the one thing that Adam and Eve did is they lost their identity as those who were created in the image of God. And at Satan's temptation, Satan told them, you can be like God. And so they desired that. And so in order to become like God, not just godly as those made in his image, they disobeyed God and they came to identify themselves to be like God. And if I think about the world and the culture that we're living in, I think we are seeing that rampant here. People are looking to find an identity in anything. They are looking to find their identity on Twitter. They're looking to find their identity in how many likes they get in Facebook. They're looking to find their identity in politics. They're looking to find their identity in their economic success. They're even looking to find their identity in calling themselves a woman when they are actually a man or calling themselves a man when they're actually a woman. This is the way in which our world is functioning. This is the way the temple wardens of our culture are seeking to fight against the truth of the gospel. And the gospel, when it comes into a city that is bent on identifying themselves in any other way than how God seeks to identify his creation, the gospel comes in and messes with the sinner's identity. 
This is why sinners hate and always have hated the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ comes into the world and Jesus Christ says, this is the truth of who you are, this is the truth of who I am, and this is what I have come to do, which is to redeem sinners from their sin and to make them right before a holy God. That's something each of us, beloved, should never forget, that we were among the temple wardens of Artemis. But for the grace of God, there go we. But by God's grace, we've been redeemed, and now God has placed us not in Ephesus, but here. In order to confront the world with the truth that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, and Jesus Christ rules over the heavens and the earth. Amen. Right? And one day, he's going to come back and judge everything. But for now, this is the moment that Paul was in as the opposition increases and the gospel comes into Ephesus. And so you'll see in this chapter that Luke notes twice in verse 10 and 20 of chapter 19, this is his point, and this is the point to us to remember, the word of the Lord ended up prevailing in a city like Ephesus. And from here, it spread throughout the entire province of Asia. The kingdom of our Lord continued to expand into the heart of this Gentile territory, and it was transforming lives. So much so that you'll see that we read from Revelation. What is the first church that Jesus addresses in the book of Revelation in those seven letters? In to eight churches in Asia Minor, it's Ephesus. This is the primary climax of the gospel's confrontation. So, one other reason, much shorter than that one, is this is also a turning point in Paul's ministry because now, from now on, as we look after Ephesus, this is the last city in which Paul can spread the gospel in a free and uninhibited way. Yes, there was opposition, but Paul was free. He could go from city to city. He was not jailed. He was not arrested permanently. But from this point on, after Ephesus, his free and uninhibited ministry is over. And Luke's going to begin to tell us of Paul's determination to go to Jerusalem first and ultimately to go to Rome with the gospel. So Jerusalem, he'll be arrested, and he'll go to Rome for trial, and, and Luke will tell us how that happened. And so even in that sense, beloved, as you look at what's happening with Pastor James Coates, for example, in Alberta, Canada, arrested for preaching the gospel. A Polish pastor also, I think it was up in Canada, I can't think of his name at the moment, um, six officers rolled into the church and tried to shut down the church service. This, this kind of world that we are living in is a world that, for the history of the church, has ultimately sought to silence it. And for Paul, this is his last free city. And then it will become an enslaved ministry. And the, in my mind, I think, how many of us are prepared to be ministers of the word of God, to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and to follow him into prison, and to follow him into his suffering, 
and to follow him into his rejection and to follow him ultimately into the grave because our hope is in him. That is a reality, beloved, that is coming. And it may not be in the next year, in the next two, three, five, 10, 15, 20, but the fact of the matter is that the world does not love or desire God, the King of Kings, to reign over them. And if we are those representatives of the Lord Jesus Christ and we belong to his kingdom, then we must be willing to speak for him, right? Who else will? Who else will speak of the good news of the gospel that sinners in this world can be reconciled to God, if not for the people of God? In any case, that's what we have here. A climax, and we have a fruitful ministry soon to be incarcerated and only then to produce even more fruit for the kingdom of God. So let's see how Luke sets the stage here for his ministry. There's really three clear sections here. Uh, Verses 18 to 23, verses 24 to 28, and then chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. And so we're just going to, because it's transitional, right, there's just some facts that are in there, but I want to draw some practical applications after each section. So we're going to talk about them and then draw out some spiritual lessons. So in verse 18, like I said, Luke starts by saying, after this, and and he's referring to that trial uh, that just happened before Gallio, which the Jews pushed for because they accused Paul of violating Roman law. And Gallio said, no, this is an issue between you Jews and your law. And so he dismissed the court case, and Paul went on free preaching the gospel. And so after this, for a year and a half, so after this, Luke says, Paul stayed many days longer in Corinth, up to a year and a half. Then he took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, bringing with him, you'll remember, Priscilla and Aquila. So apparently... Somewhere along the way, Paul had taken a vow. Uh, That's what Luke says. He says, it's not clear why he took a vow, um, but Luke says he had cut his hair uh, at Sancria. He had cut his hair for he was under a vow. Why he took a vow, it's not totally clear, but I think it's related to the Lord's promise of protecting Paul from harm while in Corinth. So Paul would have taken this private vow not to cut his hair, really to thank God for his protection and as a commitment before God to carry out God's purpose of proclaiming the gospel in Corinth. Um, And if that's the case, then this would mark the end of a vow Paul had taken and not the beginning. A case can be made that this is a Nazarite vow, like you might see in Numbers 6, and that it's the beginning of a Nazarite vow of gratitude, which Paul would complete in Jerusalem. And so that would be one of the reasons Paul is in a hurry to go back to Jerusalem. However, um, if the vow was taken outside of the Holy Land, like if you're taking that position now in Gentile territory, it would make it really difficult to observe because of the defilement that comes with contact with Gentiles, which Paul had a lot of. And furthermore, it requires 30 days of residence in Israel, and then the hair would be cut at the end of the appointed vow, not the beginning. So, whatever way you want to interpret the vow, Paul is demonstrating his trust in and thanksgiving to God for God's protection and faithfulness in Corinth. God is faithful. God is protecting. God is leading. He is guiding, and Paul sees it. So he gets to Sancria, and he cuts his hair. And Priscilla and Achilla set up a new shop in the city, and Paul does what he always does, and he goes to reason with the Jews 
in the synagogue and to tell them that Jesus is the Messiah. So he stays a short time. They ask him to stay longer. And rather um, than a Nazarite vow, I think he heads back to Jerusalem for the Passover. And he's in a hurry because... Passover's in early April, and the seas are actually closed to navigation because of bad conditions until March 10th. So this is his short window to get back. And so he says farewell, and he says, if God wills, I will return to you. And God may, man makes plans, but God determines the steps, and so he leaves. Now, even though Jerusalem isn't mentioned, when Luke writes that he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch, it points to the fact that this is the church in Jerusalem that he visited. Because for one thing, the expression, the church, if it was a church in Caesarea, it would have been identified as such, the church in Caesarea. But when it's an indefinite or a definite article pointing to the church without qualification, in a Judean setting, this is likely the church in Jerusalem. And furthermore, you wouldn't go down from Caesarea to Antioch, but from Jerusalem, the city on a mount, you would. So from Caesarea, you go up to Jerusalem. From Jerusalem, you go down to Antioch. So Paul's back in Antioch, where he begins his second missionary journey, and he stays for some time, and he gives an update to the church, as he did before, of all that God was doing. All right, that's what Luke tells us. Now, I thought about this, and I thought about it in terms of what you see Paul doing here. Paul's on a mission from God. He's presenting the gospel after he's done with his mission, he goes back to these churches and he visits them, right? And he strengthens them and he cares for them and he's loving them and he's teaching them and he's equipping them. And what that tells me about the Apostle Paul, and this is, this is extremely important for us to think about, I think. It tells me that Paul is what I would call a churchman through and through. In other words, after all that Paul has been doing, his love is for Christ and his love is for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is not a lone ranger on a mission Paul is not living his life as one who has this individual calling by God that is really detached from the bigger picture of what God is doing. Sometimes people think of themselves in that way. People think of themselves as, I'm on a special mission called by God, and then they go out into the world and they live their mission identifying themselves as this lone ranger apart from God's church and God's people. If anyone would have had a right to do that, it would have been who? Paul. Paul could have done that. He could have went about and said, well, I'm on a mission from God, and I plant this church, and I plant that church, and I plant that church, and I'm just going to live my life in the world apart from the people of God because I am only accountable to God, and to God I will give an account, and I'm not going to submit myself or be part of any, you hear this phrase all the time, right? Organized religion. What's organized religion? Setting times and dates to meet together with the people of God, that's organized. There's nothing wrong with having time set and meeting people and telling things. There's, there, there, there's a sense in which Paul is at his heart, a man who belongs to Christ and belongs to his church. Paul is not a one-off Christian. Paul believes 
that he needs to be in the church among the people of God, constantly shepherding and discipling them. I, I once met a guy locally. I'll never forget it. He came from a church that was very evangelistic. Nothing wrong with that, right? Go out into the world and present the gospel. Tell people about Jesus. And so I remember talking to him about his church, and he knew a bit about our church. And as we had this conversation, we started talking about what do we believe and what kind of doctrines and things do we hold to. And the man said to me, you know what? We don't bother with that stuff. Our job is to save them. Your job is to equip them. And I thought, what a disconnect. What a disconnect with how God intends his church to function. Our job is to proclaim the gospel, but part of making disciples of all the nations is what? Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. See, this is a this is not the kind of disconnect that is in Paul's mind. Paul's mind is preach the gospel, teach the gospel, equip the church, and strengthen the people of God. And so in any case, in verse 24, Luke now says Paul leaves Ephesus, he cuts his hair, he strengthens the churches. In verse 23, he begins his second missionary journey. And then in verse 24, you see he draws our attention to Apollos. This new person, Apollos, and so he's highlighting him, and he says he's a Jew born in the city of Alexandria. And Alexandria is this ancient city. It's known for education. I just sounded like a Canadian there. It's known for education. My wife's from Canada, so I know what that sounds like. It's known for uh, its education. It, it, it had a massive museum. It, it had a 400,000-volume library. Um, in Alexandria, that's the city where the Greek version of the Hebrew scriptures called the Septuagint was made. So Apollos is this product of that city. And Luke says he's eloquent, he's competent in the Old Testament scriptures. Um, some say it's possible he even studied under the famous Jewish philosopher Philo, um, who not only knew Greek philosophy, but he was also... Uh, a scholar of the Old Testament in the Greek, so maybe. But in any case, somewhere along the way, Apollos had been instructed in the way of the Lord by some disciples of John the Baptist. So remember that John the Baptist is the forerunner of the Messiah. He's chosen by God as a prophet to proclaim the arrival of the Messiah. That's what John the Baptist did. He's sent by God to say, prepare the way of the Lord. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is coming. Repent of your sins because your creator God, the Lord Jesus, is coming. And so he proclaims this. And so somewhere along the line, the disciples of John teach this to Apollos. And Apollos believes what he had been taught regarding Jesus and the gospel. And Luke says he spoke and taught accurately the things that he knew, and he did so with passion. He was fervent in spirit. He had this inward desire and drive for Christ and for what he knew of the gospel. And he spoke that truth. He was accountable for it. And so he went to speak boldly in the synagogue. But Luke goes on to say, when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, Priscilla and Aquila, who were they taught by? The Apostle Paul. When they heard him speaking, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. More accurately means there were some gaps in Apollos' understanding. He was accurate as far as his understanding went, but he needed to know more. 
He, he lacked some understanding that needed to be filled in. Um, it, he needed to, to know that Christ had died and risen again and that the Holy Spirit was going to be sent as a gift. And so this is important because Paul's interaction in chapter 19 with those 12 disciples is different. Apollos is saved. Those 12 disciples are not saved when Paul meets them. So he continues on after he's instructed by Priscilla and Aquila, and he continues on and leaves to Achaia to strengthen the churches. Now, I thought about it. I, I know I'm doing this a bit different than normal, but when you look now at Apollos here, what, what really jumped out to me in this part was how Priscilla and Aquila taught him more accurately the things regarding Jesus. And again, we are, I keep drawing it back to the culture that we live in because it's important. But we are living in a culture that does not believe that things are foundationally and objectively true. You understand that? Think that the, the culture we live in does not hold to objective, foundational truth. Things are relative, if at all, and there is not even truth at all in the culture we live in. And yet here, Apollos needed to be taught more accurately. So there's a sense in which you might want to just say, what is wrong with what Apollos was doing? He spoke what he knew to be true. Shouldn't Priscilla and Aquila just have said, it's good enough? And the details don't matter. And he's talking about Jesus, and people are hearing about Jesus, and let him go on his way. But they don't do that because they understand that as God's people, we need to be a people who believe in the truth and proclaim the truth. We need to be people that are defenders of the truth so that when we communicate the gospel, we are communicating the gospel as accurately as possible. It's not just enough to say, Jesus saves. It's not just enough to say, Jesus is the Messiah. We need to be able to be accurate in terms of how we are confronting the world and conveying the truth of the gospel. I'm not saying we need to be scholars and theological scholars, but if we can help one another understand the gospel more clearly, then we should take that opportunity to do that. Because the world that we are living in, if, if we are not faithfully proclaiming as accurately as possible the truth, then who are they ever gonna hear it from, right? And so that's what Priscilla and Aquila do here. They hear him, and they don't rebuke him in front of everyone, but they take him aside, and they explain, they fill in the gaps for Apollos more accurately. And so you'll notice they don't baptize him. He was baptized with John's baptism, so they don't re-baptize him, but he goes off and he continues ministering. And so we move into chapter 19 now. Now the stage is kind of set for Paul's arrival into Ephesus. So now that God had moved Paul to just touch Ephesus before, to bring Apollos into Ephesus to meet Priscilla and Aquila, now the stage is kind of set for Paul to go back to a door that God had previously closed on him in Acts 16. And God does that. God sometimes closes doors, sends us in a different direction, and later he brings us back when the time is right, 
to do what he has set us to do. And so we shouldn't be discouraged by closed doors because it doesn't mean they're closed forever. God is executing his plan, his sovereign plan, and now is the time for God to bring Paul into Asia with the gospel. And so he does. And so upon his arrival, Luke says that Paul found some disciples there. And the question that should come to your mind is disciples of who? Some say that the phrase is disciples means disciples of Jesus because Paul says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? However, the term disciples just means learner or follower. And in this context, I think the disciples are also disciples of John the Baptist, like Apollos. And the Pharisees also had disciples, and John the Baptist had disciples. And so this isn't an indication that they're saved. And so in this particular case, I think it's disciples of John the Baptist. And so Luke is drawing out a contrast here with Apollos and with these disciples of John. Apollos knew about Jesus, taught about him accurately with fervor, was told more truth and went on without being rebaptized. But these Ephesian disciples, they needed to learn about Jesus for the first time. And they needed to be baptized in his name and they needed to receive the Holy Spirit. They needed essentially to identify with Jesus Christ for the first time. In Ephesus, their identity needed to be drawn and attached to Christ as their Savior. And so Paul sees something lacking in them, and he's right. Because when he asks them if they received the Holy Spirit when they believed, their response is, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So they revealed their true condition. A genuine Christian would not have responded like that, especially since John the Baptist himself had said that the one who comes after me will baptize his followers with the Spirit, Luke 3.16. And so Jesus even endorsed that teaching of John. So it's probably that these were nominal disciples of John who had acquired their knowledge of John's teaching in a second-hand way, were baptized by someone else rather than John the Baptist himself. And these were not believers. And so they called themselves disciples. And they represent some kind of degenerate form of John's message. So Luke notes that upon hearing about Jesus then from Paul, that they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They identified with Jesus as their Messiah. They identified with his life, death, burial, and resurrection. These disciples of John needed to hear the gospel for the first time. Maybe some of you need to hear the gospel for the first time. Maybe you identify with this church because of whatever reason, but you haven't yet identified with Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Let me put the gospel simply to you. We did this in the baptism class. The gospel's good news. And it's good news because God is your creator. God is holy. God is righteous. God will judge every man and woman for the sin that they have committed. Everyone in the world has committed sin. And the reason that we know that the world, including us, is full of sinners is because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. 
everybody dies because everybody is a sinner. And so the question becomes, how can you be made right before a holy God? How can you, at the end of your life when you die, stand and give an account for your life before God? How can you be just before a God that you have sinned against? And the fact of the matter is, if you are left to yourself, you can't. You will come before God's holy, righteous throne of grace, your creator, and you will have nothing to appeal to but your works of sin and unrighteousness. And so the gospel says there is good news because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the promised Messiah, came into the world to be a sin offering in your place. He came and having not sinned, having been a perfect man, having never sinned in thought or deed or action, he came to offer his life in place of yours, to bear the judgment that you and I deserved for our sin on himself. That's the simplicity of the gospel. And he says that if you will place your faith in what Jesus Christ has done to save sinners, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, hallelujah, he says, you will be saved. That's the message of the gospel. That's what these disciples needed to hear. These disciples simply needed to hear that you are not saved by church affiliation. You are not saved by following a famous pastor. You are not saved by attending church every Sunday. You are not saved by stopping drug abuse. You are not saved by giving to a church charity. You are not saved by going to Sunday school. You are not saved by being baptized. You are not saved, beloved. I, how much more clear can it be? You cannot be saved by anything that you or I do. We are through and through sinners who are guilty before a holy God, and there is no way for us to erase our bad works by trying to do more good works. There is not a scale on the day of judgment. God is not putting your good works on a scale compared to your bad so that if your good works outweigh the bad works, you're welcomed into heaven. And if your bad works outweigh your good works, you go into hell. That's not how God does it. God says, while you were yet sinners, this is love. Christ died for you. And if you believe on Jesus Christ and confess your sin, confess your need for him as a savior, he saves that's what Jesus does. He saves. And so that's what happened with these disciples in Ephesus. They heard the gospel for the first time. They heard about Jesus, and they are saved. And so they're saved, and they're baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They identified with his life, death, burial, and resurrection through obedience to baptism as Christ has commanded us. True faith in Christ and baptism, they go hand in hand. And this is why after they're saved and they're baptized, this is the beginning of the battle now in Ephesus. Because what happens is Paul goes and he lays his hands on them and he prays for them as happened in Samaria and at Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them, 
and they're filled with the gift of the Spirit, and they speak in tongues, and they prophesy. And so this is not the norm for the church. This is a transitional period, and the point is, is that God has said through Paul's ministry that now my church is planted in Ephesus, and now the gospel is going to confront this pagan culture in this city. And wow, next week, when you see what happens, it just makes you realize how powerful the Lord Jesus Christ is and how life-transforming his gospel is because these people so embedded in this false identity and lie when they hear the truth about Jesus their lives are changed. You want to know that you're a believer? If you trusted in Christ as your Savior, ask yourself, is your life any different? Has anything happened in your thinking, in your heart, in your life to indicate that you even know Jesus Christ at all? Now's the day, beloved, to do that. Confess Christ as your Lord. You will be saved, and you, with these Ephesian people, you'll burn all that trash that you cling to, all that sin that you love, all of your pride. You'll cast it out the door. And the reason you'll do it is because you'll see Christ, he paid for that sin with his blood and was judged in your place. How can you live in it any longer, right? Beloved, let us pray and give thanks for our great king and for the salvation he has given to us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word and for the truth that is contained therein. Thank you, Father, for the power of the gospel to confront the world in which we live and really even to confront our own souls and our own hearts and minds. We know, Father, that we needed a Savior for we all sin and fall short of your glory. And we know that the wages of our sin is death. And we know, Father, that there is no good or no good works or righteousness that we could do on our own that would enable us to come and be accepted before you. And we know, Father, that we are living in a city that rejects that truth, that believes that they are good and righteous that they are acceptable before your sight. We know, Father, we live in a city like that, but yet we know we were among them, but you have redeemed us. And so we ask, Lord, that you would help us to be faithful, to accurately proclaim the truth, to do so lovingly, to be faithful, to call people to be baptized who have believed in the name of the Lord Jesus, that we would be faithful church men and women seeking to be together with God's people to be reminded of these things, that we would be a people that are living in this world set apart unto you for righteousness and for holiness and not for our own personal gain or satisfaction. Father, help us to see the world for what it is and the battle that is taking place with the Lord Jesus Christ and the rulers of this world. And help us to stand faithfully in Christ, knowing that you have loved us and you have cared for us and the victory is ultimately yours. We ask, Father, for your gospel to go forth from our lips this day as we go to our homes, that we would make Christ known Speak of your love and your kindness and your forgiveness to sinners who need to hear, for we ask it in Christ's holy 
and precious name. Amen. Let's sing uh, in response to this message this morning from hymn 105, hymn 105, and it, it's, it's a song that sings about Christ's love for us and the fact that we as his people and you, if you have come to faith in Christ, can speak of his wonderful love and his mercy and his love for you, a sinner. Let's stand together. Hymn 105. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. For me it was in the garden, he prayed not my will but thine. He had no tears for his own griefs, but sweat drops of blood for mine. How marvelous, how wonderful is my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. In pity angels beheld him and came from the world of light to comfort him in the sorrows he bore for my soul that night. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. He took my sins and my sorrows, he made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. When with the ransomed in glory, his face I at last shall see, t'will be my joy through the ages to sing of his love for me. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. If you would like to come up and talk to me after the service, and you'd like to give your life to Christ, you can do that, and I'd love to talk to you. For us, beloved, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you now and forever and ever, to him belongs the glory forever. Amen. Let us sing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. 